Hello and welcome to another episode of Radio Zaddy, uh, your home for a brief introduction to queer things in this queer world. Uh, I'm Hannah Bestwick and with me as ever is... Daisy Thurston Gent. Yeah, how are you? Not bad, thank you. Not bad. Um, I'm waiting for the, the spring to hurry up and bring me some oh. bring me some warm weather i feel like um, we've been we've been so teased with the weather because i think we had like a couple of days where it's absolutely beautiful haven't we I just shed my jacket my like p- big puffer coat and i strolled around in just a jumper and then it's gone back to raining all day today so i feel like it was yeah it was a bit of a trap to lure me into do a you have a, like a summer and a winter wardrobe or is that kind of a, a thing that has sort of died with the the previous generation my mum has a has a has a winter wardrobe that she packs away yeah, oh my God, my mum does that too. She's got a suitcase, <laughs> <thing>? suitcases, <laughs> plural, in the attic of her winter clothes. Yep. And I'm just like, no, I just tend to... I just like, layer. But to be fair, I've got like four jumpers, a pair of shorts and a pair of jeans. And so I just wear the jeans through the winter and I wear the shorts through the summer. And that's <laughs> that's about yeah, it. Yeah, they're, the, they're but, the two winter wardrobes, <laughs> shorts or jeans. So it wouldn't really be worth packing my pair of shorts away (laughs) what about you do you do do that so i so i did recently when i started when i moved um house i packed uh, some non-essential uh skimpy uh summer clothes into uh, under my bed and i was like god is this is this what being an adult is that the kind of that's the threshold isn't it having a having a summer wardrobe and a winter wardrobe now nah, usually i just pull my socks up mean a bit. that you have loads of clothes rather than having a summer and a winter rather than it being meaning that you're an adult that means that you just it means i haven't grown like. since my teenage years hannah that's what it means um and oh, i'd rather yeah. not talk about this anymore yeah me too <laughs> i stopped uh i i got to 163 centimeters when i was about 16 and i have <laughs> and then capped it at that on the dot <laughs> Yeah, no, that was. I'm about as tall as my dad, and I think that's probably about as much as I'm gonna get at this point. At 29, I don't think you get many more growth spurts after that. I feel like do you? It's, you know you start to shrink instead. It's like the sort of black hole, expandable, and then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the universe will start coming back on itself. Um, so I might as well get in there and do my kind of. It's not quite the Benjamin Button syndrome, but it's uh, it's, it's something it's like the, that. Yeah, it's on that path. Um, uh, Daisy, I actually think it's it's you first this week, is it? It is. Yes, it's oh, me exciting. first. Oh, I can um, sit back and relax. Yeah, I'm I'm excited about um, my topic this week. Yeah. Yeah, I, I've um, I've taken inspiration um, from uh, from my own life and from um, my kind of current activities. So um, I'm sure you can kind of guess where this is going. I'm going to be talking about um, uh, history of LGBT cycling. Um, Ooh. And of yeah, queer gears and the old um, dikes on bikes. Dikes on bikes, exactly. It's not a, it's not a history I knew too much about. You know, I'm obviously growing up in Cambridge. I um, bikes have been pretty second nature to me, and I kind of wanted to, you know, make a little connection as to as to why I feel a particular kind of um, freedom and why I, I feel myself uh, most myself on on the bicycle. Yeah, yeah. So the kind of so the the kind of the wheels we ride. Uh, today are were originally known as safety bicycles which uh in the in the late 1890s uh, the world witnessed this uh, this great cycling craze mm. um that kind of swept through the industrialized world um and the upper and middle classes uh, basically began peddling these new very fancy uh, quite stylish uh, safety bicycles mm-hmm. um which sort, sort of grew in popularity as a as an alternative to the penny farthing that one massive wheel at the front tiny <laughs> wheel at the back job. one big exactly um and the safety bicycles are actually still the most common type of bicycle uh, even today hey that makes sense actually <laughs> <laughs> so early bicycles of this if this style were noted um for and marketed as uh, being far safer, hence the name, uh, than their teetering high wheelers um, counterparts that they were replacing. Mm-hmm. I mean, penny farthings—they are magnificent, though, aren't they? They're ridiculous, but they're utterly they're magnificent. So they're very, like, so in- incredibly iconic. That yeah. one large wheel, one little wheel. But like, I remember <laughs> learning about them, and that people just had to like—you had to run with them to get them started, and then jump on them. Yep. And in order to stop, you just had to jump off. Yeah, and I mean, just let it hit a wall or whatever. And I was like, "That's not cycling. That's just cruising that's just, and crashing. acrobatics." Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not you know the cent- the distribution of weight. You know, it was all it's all, all wrong. wrong, really. Um, all wrong. So the main attraction of uh, of the safety bicycle was that it reduced the danger of flying over the handlebars for one. Good. Um, more effective braking um, and generally just easier 
uh, to ride, which opened up uh, the activity of cycling, which was previously reserved for those kind of daredevils and daring uh, young gentlemen, Mm. uh, to new audiences as something far safer and and thus more popular and accessible, particularly for women. Yeah. So uh, at the time, you also had um, tricycles as well, which were another form of bicycle that were um, quite popular um, with more safety conscious riders. Mm -hmm. But the safety bicycle sort of took things up a gear. Excuse the pun. There's going to be loads of bicycle <laughs> puns. Uh, <laughs> as they were lighter, mechanically more simple, and more importantly, um, far less expensive. Right. Which is certainly what <laughs> draws me to a bicycle. Um, so its popularity soon uh, grew to be more than the penny farthing and the tricycle sort of combined. Um, and that's what really led to uh, the bike boom mm-hmm. uh, in the 1890s. So before the bicycle boom of 1896, the aristocracy were said to have begun to uh, wobbling about in Battersea Park. Um, and then the following spring, cycling was uh, permitted in Hyde Park in wow. London. Um, and the bicycle, yeah, it was sort of a status symbol. And it was very common for wealthy families to uh, display their bicycles ornamentally in their in their wide hallways. Gosh. And some homes even kind of employed, uh, you know, staff and a kind of uniformed boys to kind of look after and, and maintain and clean their guests' bicycles. Mm, like with horses and things, they had to have hired help to keep them clean and well kept. Exactly. So the bicycles became the kind of, you know, the, the alternative uh, trusted steeds of aristocracy, which is rather lovely. However, the, the aristocracy were rarely seen on, you know, on the actual highways of the city of London. And they were you know, they were generally transported to and from the parks uh, by carriage, darling. Mm, carriage. So by the by the late 1890s um, and with the arrival of uh, motor cars and, you know, increased public access to motor cars, uh, the cycling boom was fading. So it wasn't a very long boom, <laughs> sort of the tail end of the um, 1890s. And the middle classes, you know, they did continue to cycle at, at their leisure. But um, it, for the lower middle classes, cycling was an essential aid to social mobility. Mm. For the lower middle classes, a uh, bicycle was, was a major investment. So, yeah, so on to some sort of queer connections yeah. to cycling. Enlighten me. <laughs> I had a lot of fun uh, researching this. So up first, uh, I'm going to tell you about uh, photographer Alice Austin, um, who was one of America's earliest female photographers, uh, known to be the first woman to take her camera into the streets of New York City, producing sort of this invaluable record of life um, at the turn of the 20th century. Um, and she mainly focused her lens on the upper class world, uh, recording what she referred to as the larky life, <laughs> which was, you know, tennis matches, swimming, amateur theatrics, auto races and famously uh, bicycling all the stuff though they could they could do in that spare time they had exactly and you can totally picture it it's like these glorious um <laughs> glorious images of like frolicking basically um, yeah. and there's a lot of there's a series of um photographs of uh you know women on on bikes that um austin produced and her private collection uh was seen to mock uh victorian society and the restrictions that it took particularly put on women so her work kind of challenges gender roles um and explores her her own identity as a woman and um that of her kind of female friends friendships as well mm. so read into that what you will so the bicycle has uh, long been seen as a method of freedom and mobility for uh, what is referred to as the new woman uh, which is a feminist ideal um, that you may have heard of that emerged in the late 19th century and it had a you know profound influence on european and american feminism at the time and the term was coined by irish writer sarah grand to refer to independent women seeking radical change. Nice. Uh, so that was first used um, in an article in 1894. And this sort of motion of independence for the new woman, uh, was it was more than a matter of mindset. It was more like about their, uh, you know, their physical changes in, you know, in their activities um, and in the way they dress. So the act of cycling in particular kind of expanded uh, women's ability to actively engage with the broader world, you know, outside mm. of the home. And, you know, the bike really allowed women uh, of the time uh, a freedom of movement that, you know, now that they were no longer kind of reliant on on men uh, to get around. Uh, they had access yeah. to more work, um, social opportunities outside of the home um, and partake in social and political activism uh, if they wished. So, you know, whatever floats your boat. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah. So uh, the bike was, you know, the gateway to, to all of that. Uh, or a symbol for all of that, let's say. Um, mm-hmm. So Alice Austin, um, it, uh, she's an interesting person on the on the timeline, um, mainly because of her documentation of female cyclists. Um, she produced the images for a friend of hers, friend Violet Ward's 1896 book, Bicycling for Ladies, mm-hmm. uh, where Austin photographed another friend, just gals being pals, Hannah, just gals Absolutely, being pals. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, 
the gymnast Daisy Elliott, who Daisy, uh, that's your was name. Sort of, that is my name. <laughs> Daisy Elliott, uh, who was uh, kind of modelling, demonstrating uh, the correct and dangerously incorrect ways to um, you know, turn corners on your bicycle, coast, dismount, and turn your bicycle upside down for repairs. Um, it's an like, amazing set of photographs um, of this, yeah, this gymnast basically riding. Um, bikes in all kinds of bizarre and uh, precarious <laughs> poses it's great it's really great uh, what a larky time <laughs> what a lark what an absolute lark what a larky time that was uh, just gals being pals <laughs> so so austin actually um shared more than half her life with uh, an intimate companion called gertrude tate mm-hmm. uh, who came to live with her uh, at her home in staten island in 1917 mm. and this house is now like a historical uh, landmark and what's sad is that the uh, the creators of the of the historic house actually originally steered away from even using the term lesbian and was sort of labelled labelled her as someone who led an unconventional lifestyle, um, which obviously we see quite a lot. It's a signifying code we queers understand yeah, all too it's well. A very well known code as well, isn't mm, it? But I yeah. just feel like unconventional lifestyle just makes it sound like, you know, she was one of those quirky people that would eat their meals mm. in a backwards order or something like that. Whereas like yeah. she was just she was just gay. Or she was just queer. Yeah, she was she wasn't unconventional, yeah. she was just queer. <laughs> Yeah, it was a fairly conventional lifestyle, you know, to live with one other person yeah. in an intimate setting in a home for 53 years. <laughs> like To have to have a partner yeah. to fall in love feels quite conventional to it me. Sounds quite know. conventional, you know, she didn't decide to move to the moon. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> Janice Munger, who is the uh, executive direct- director of um, Alice Austin House in Staten Island, uh, yeah. even claims uh, there's a history of not talking about Gertrude. And even in the introductory vid- video when you visit the house, um, it notes that uh, Alice Austin was never to marry, um, which is just really sad because, yeah. you know, the couple, it sort of diminishes the, um, yeah, the couple's 53-year-long relationship and it's just yeah, kind of Yeah, and I also ignored. really hate that that saying of like, oh, they never married, but okay, so maybe they never had like a, a wedding in a church or something, but mm. it doesn't mean they haven't married because marriage doesn't belong to like the state and it doesn't belong to the church either. It's, yeah. it's been around as long as like humans have had a, a kind of culture at all. It's been... Mm. A kind of uh, a ceremony of dedication rather than like it wasn't invented by any particular institution so there's nothing to say that actually maybe there's nothing to say yeah. that they didn't actually get married in some informal in some way, form you know and, yeah yeah and, and and that would be beautiful but the phrase to say oh she wasn't to marry just completely ignores kind of, the kind of um, it, it, the richness it diminishes of the relationship of, yeah, yeah it diminishes it but it also um it diminishes the richness of queer society and communities to to still live our lives to the fullest just because you said mm-hmm. that you don't think that they were married it doesn't mean they weren't married in yeah. their like in their own circles in their own life and it's just yeah i just think it's such bullshit <laughs> sorry you can yeah absolutely on. i'm sure that yeah their gymnast friend didn't kind of cycle around and be like <laughs> i don't know judge them for for being just you know living together and they you know had, they had lots of visitors who would kind of come in and out and stay in the house and yeah exactly it sounds it sounds incredibly rich to be honest mm. it sounds delightful so uh sounds it's only in recent years that um exactly that austin has been hailed as a you know a rightful kind of lgbt icon um and anyway the house has now been like um, poised as this, you know, as an official LGBT historic landmark. Um, so yeah, homophobia on your bike. On your bike. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's another brilliant photograph I, um, I came across of uh, Frances Benjamin Johnson, uh, who was also a lesbian, open uh, openly living with her partner this time, Matty Edwards Hewitt. Frances was known to be one of the, the key members of that uh, new woman feminist movement. Um, and embraced the bicycle as a tool for equality. Uh, also helped in part by the less restrictive clothing of the time, um, sort of popularised by that movement, uh, bloomers. Oh. Um, yep. <laughs> Big old bloomers. <laughs> Big old bloomers. Um, I've got a quote from uh, Science History Institute, um, an article called uh, Women's Work, and it says, The knee-length bloomers and baggy pantaloons worn by female cyclists at the turn of the century became emblematic of this newfound autonomy. So... I mean, bloomers as a, as a queer object, yeah. somewhat kind of flaunting their rejection of traditional gender norms. Um, mm. And yeah, one of the many comparisons we can make between uh, women's rights um, and fashion apparel. Yeah. Uh, also, the haircuts started getting a lot shorter uh, at around that time. So, you know, it's all connected. It's all it's all so about gonna... making it easier to ride a bike. That's what you're telling me is that <laughs> women's fashion is about bicycles. <laughs> That's what I'm saying, yeah. Yeah, uh, cool. all, yeah fem- feminism sort of literally rides on... Uh, <laughs> 
what's between your legs no yeah I'm but do you remember that. those like three quarter length trousers that were also called pedal pushers it oh my was goodness all coming together are they the modern day bloomers? Not modern day, but are they the kind of nineties <laughs> bloomers? I bet they are. I bet that that's our bloomers. They are the one. They? They're tight <laughs> bloomers. Oh my goodness! Um, you've just opened up a whole can of worms. Exactly. The next episode. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Um, yeah, 90s repressed queer fashion. Uh, watch this space. In this self-portrait, um, which was taken in 1890, uh, Johnson poses be- beside a penny farthing, dressed as a man to be intentionally provocative and deliberately challenging the status quo. So um, so she was a photographer. Uh, um, this was a self-portrait um, and she's in a full suit, a little bit of facial hair. Um, and the penny farthing is a really kind of, yeah, provocative and, and telling prop because... Uh, you know, they were notor- notoriously difficult to ride, even for very athletic men. Yeah. So to kind of pose next to it was the ultimate kind of, yeah, fuck you, I can I can do anything. That's so good. <laughs> so there seems to be, um, in my initial research, uh, there seems to be quite a lot of, um, a long history of butch cross-dressing lesbian photographers in the history of cycling. Hey. Pretty much up until the 20th century. Uh, but where are we now? So unfortunately, much of the uh, professional cycling world has been heavily criticised, um, as you've probably seen, for its, its lack of diversity mm. pretty much over the last century. Um, but there's now like an increasing amount of um, queer representation beginning to, to build up uh, this kind of new community in recent years, like Queer Gears. And um, where one of the books on my reading list is, is called Gears for Queers. Nice. Um, I don't know if you've heard of it. No. Um, I think it came out last year. But it's, it, the book documents um, a neurodivergent a queer couples cycling tour from Amsterdam to uh, Montpellier in the south of France oh. and it includes kind of the highs and lows of, of a cycling tour from two self-proclaimed uh, novices um, yeah. <laughs> uh, as they navigate the journey um, as a visibly queer couple um, challenging these kind of looming preconceptions and pressures really from the the online professional um, cycling community yeah the authors basically said they hadn't seen themselves in um, traditional uh, or seen themselves reflected in cycling narratives before and in, in an interview, one of the authors, uh, Lilith Cooper, says, as queer and disabled people, our cycle tour was never going to look like the cycle tours we saw when scrolling on Instagram. Mm. And yeah, they've all their photographs are, are really, um, really empowering because it makes you think like, oh, yeah, I could, you know, those those people look like me. And, you know, and they're not lycra tight clad professionals. Um, you know, they're just... Yeah people who who ride around you know maybe like I do or you and I yeah I mean something that the pair discuss quite early on in the book is their reluctance to claim the term cyclist even um due to the fact that neither of them were members of a cycling club and they didn't particularly consider themselves like serious leisure cyclists Lilith talks about growing up in Cambridge um and thus always having a bike um Mm. which is quite similar to uh to me um whereas Abby describes um falling out of the the habit of cycling uh in her teenage years and and only returning to the bike as a mode of financially accessible transportation when she moved to Cambridge in her 20s yeah which is sort of similar to something you've said in a previous episode about um you know sports and and outdoor kind of leisure activities um there's this kind of point pivotal point in sort of teenage teenagers um particularly for for women i would say where they do kind of fall out of you know fall out of you know having a confidence for for cycling um in this for exercise in general i think i was yeah. um, i was reading something the other day that was just talking about like why why people who are like assigned female at birth tend not to engage with with exercise um very often mm. or with with much enthusiasm is because for the most part the rhetoric around or like the kind of the common narrative around women exercising is just as a form as a way to be skinny rather than to Mm. like enjoy yourself do a sport you like like go cycling for fun it's like oh I have to go on a run because I'm putting on weight rather than make Mm. like framing Mm. it as something that can be really enjoyable and I think that's something that you know around um our teenage years Mm. it's just it's so it just feels shit right yeah, it that's when it happens, isn't it? You know, uninteresting if body confidence. If yeah, if that's what you're being taught, it's for. I don't know. Yeah, definitely didn't get me. Definitely. Engaged. Yeah, I mean, neither of the authors felt like they they quite met the the criteria, you know, to warrant the title, you know, the mm. grand title of cyclist, um, because you know their bikes weren't fancy at all, and you know they didn't own any lycra, <laughs> but they but yet you know and yet uh, they embarked on this cycling tour, um, to kind of prove 
that uh, the term cyclist can be reclaimed by anyone. And the book talks about ways to enjoy riding your bike in a way that um, allows all bicycle users to coexist uh, without the need to kind of prove your validity. Yeah, everyone should feel that they belong on a bike. The other author, Abby, um, kind of mentions like, oh, I'm, you know, she describes herself as, as unfit and, um, and as a fat person. And she, she says, I didn't get any less fat cycling the 200,000 kilometers. What was it? 20,000 kilometers. Um, that That's her body type. And, and she's confident in that and being on a bike, you know, and she belongs on a bike. And, um, and this was sort of a, a kind of a way to prove that sort of to herself, but also to nobody, <laughs> just to exist. And, and that's fine that's valid yeah and so the, bu- the book also questions uh why why the cycling world is kind of divided into men and, and women um with trans and non-binary people sort of tagged onto existing events um, yeah. and, and clubs without necessarily having access to their own spaces yeah which is something the authors wanted to challenge um so they've stated that uh, the book is about being queer um and at the same time it's about learning to read maps uh, mm-hmm. and fixing punctures and the joy of riding so yeah. it's you know it's not kind of hammering at home but it's just saying like oh this is this is what it was like for us. Yeah, this was my particular queer you know, as adventure. these people. Mm, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like um, another book on my reading. Yeah, it's. I, I can't wait to read it. I haven't. Um, I've read a lot about it, but I haven't. Um, I haven't actually. Um, turn the pages just yet. Another book on my reading list is uh, called Trans Galactic Bike Ride, uh, which is a collection of uh, feminist bicycle science fiction short stories um, of transgender and non-binary adventurers, edited by Lydia Rogue. And oh, it just sounds so, so brilliant. I'll read you the blurb because this is what um, sold it to me. In worlds where bicycle rides bring luck, a minotaur needs a bicycle, and where werewolves stalk the post-apocalyptic lan- landscape, nobody has time to question gender. Whatever your identity you'll enjoy these stories that are both thought-provoking and fun adventures which is pretty much the goal i think uh for any inclusive cycling club sounds so great werewolves minotaurs like that's you know and they're all getting around on on bikes um which i think is brilliant and like magical bikes um and it's not really about no one's really asking about your gender i think yeah shifting the focus to um adventure um and freedom of mobility and uh, away from binaries gender or otherwise so good so that sounds good i'll lend you i'll lend you that um so the rise of queer people cycling in uh let's say 2020 um and 2021 throughout lockdown the bike has been sort of has risen again as this kind of vital tool of connection um i i personally think we know that queer people have suffered particularly in the global COVID-19 pandemic um, as many community spaces have been closed which leaves you know many individuals even more isolated isolated from their social networks uh, resources friends and chosen families so I you know I found um, cycling the streets of um, the empty streets of London was a way to uh, connect with my queer network um, in the absence of community events I grew up in Cambridge uh, so cycling has always been kind of my go-to uh, mode of transport as with many small cities um, it's just way more financially viable far quicker um to get around than many Especially forms of public in, like, transport settings where like i think it can be really easily forgotten how shit public transport is in rural communities yeah. like in bus the town hour. i grew up in there was like a bus every hour and a half in the morning and none in the afternoon out mm. to the main town so you couldn't even like get the bus out and then get the bus back in again in the evening so the mm. next town over was about a half hour cycle which is where my mates lived and so I would just yeah. cycle. Like, I couldn't get yeah. the bus. I had to cycle. It just, you needed And to like, connect. you know, if they're costing you two, three, four, five pounds sometimes, you know, for a single journey, you're just like... This is ridiculous. It's not sustainable, especially for you know, you know, young people um, or yes. people who are isolated and really rely on friendship because they don't have you know maybe a family structure um, or they need to kind of get out and find that sense of community and friendship. So it's only um, it's only within the last year that I've uh, sort of connected my my own my cycling habits um, uh, to my queerness and my kind of long for yeah escape and and freedom and personal mobility. And I, I really do see it as the first time I was able to to go out and do exactly what I wanted and to have. Yeah. Free freedom of movement any time of the day or night that, that I wanted yeah it's that real and I think that's so important really yeah. Yeah. yeah 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 according to Cycling UK uh, cycling traditionally has been perceived as somewhat of a male dominated pastime mm-hmm. um, I would probably probably agree with that with little visible representation from groups outside of the traditional um, mammal uh, stereotype uh, mammal is a middle aged man in lycra my father and all his friends <laughs> yeah which is you know it's fine we can have space for, for them too uh, last year Cycling UK partnered with um, LGBT including cycling group pride out 
Um, yeah. don't know if you've heard of those um, to mark Pride Month with the day of socially distanced bike rides across the country under the hashtag Our Pride Ride um, oh, so Pride Ride uh, Pride Out uh, also marked LGBT History Month this year by encouraging its members and social media followers to discover um, and cycle to uh, historic LGBT landmarks in their area um, and to post photos of their younger selves uh, with their bicycles you know at kind of maybe a pivotal age or you know, child, oh, you know childhood photo so sweet yeah which is lovely for many uh, LGBT cycling groups uh, the bicycle is, is seen as a tool of um, community empowerment that uh, one that should be you know not limited to gender ethnicity uh, ability or confidence you know anyone should and, and can uh, get out on, on a bicycle and, and find a cycling group so other notable mentions um, kind of modern LGBT cycling um, German cyclist Judith Judith Arndt who became the first out lesbian um, to medal at the 2012 Olympics in London damn nice Girl. Where she won a, a silver medal um, in the time trials. Whoop whoop. Um, lesbians getting medals. Love it. <laughs> if you're uh, if you're listening in the in the US, you can follow the terrific work uh, of Chris Mosier, um, who's a triathlete and the first transgender man to make uh, the men's national team, um, nice. which is pretty impressive. Um, he's also the founder of Trans Athlete, which provides a whole heap of uh, resources, uh, useful resources for those in the sporting world. Uh, and uh, Graham Weinstein uh, is a founder of out cycling and the fearless flyers uh, cycling clubs uh, for lgbtq cyclists who um, are based in new york city and i found a couple of um sort of interviews uh, with graham uh, weinstein and uh, he talks about coming out in in 1992 mm. um as both gay and hiv positive also which really is really hard really difficult really really brave uh which ultimately led uh, led him towards a more kind of focused and um and healthy lifestyle uh, which included cycling um and it included charity fundraising through cycling uh, to kind of raise awareness of of um the HIV AIDS crisis that him he you know him and his community and friends were living through and yeah out cycling's fearless flyers program is cycling a cycling club for um for for queer youth and it, it fosters a safe and healthy environment for queer youth uh, through 10 weeks of cycling um, and personal empowerment. It just sounds so lovely. Um, yeah. And at the end of the program, you uh, each graduate earns a free bike, um, a helmet and a lock. And I was like, yeah. dude, that is that is excellent. That is that is excellent really cool. uh, work. So fearless flyers. I don't know whether I could pass as a, as a youth, but it sounds fantastic. We're short enough, definitely. For sure. Absolutely. But we I, hang out in like, forts. I've started noticing, like, I always knew I had like this bit of patch of grey at the top, but now it's all around. So I don't think I could... <laughs> Get, get in anymore. R.I.P. R.I.P. Me getting a free bike. No, maybe we can. Um, maybe we can find a. A UK alternative, yeah, for grey-haired youth. <laughs> and then finally, for um, for those of you listening uh, to our episodes in a timely manner, and maybe um, Hannah, you'll find this uh, interesting. Next week, uh, the twenty second to the twenty sixth of March, uh, there are a number of free online lunchtime talks, uh, free oh. about all about inclusive uh, cycling as part of the Switching Gears Festival. Um, so I will definitely be uh, tuning into that. Uh, the Gears for Queers authors, um, uh, Lily and Abby, are speaking um, on the Wednesday, I think, uh, and there. Also, be talks about disability in cycling, as well as women of color in cycling, and how cycling communities uh, can build more inclusive networks. Um, and I've got so many and um, so many photographs uh, from Alice Austin, you know, from the archives, um, yeah. which I'll be sure to share. Yeah, oh, I'll be sure to share them on, them media. on our so on good. our socials. So yeah, I feel like there's probably more to more to more to discover, but a lot about uh, a lot about lesbian photographers in the history of cycling who knew yeah, that's really um, so cool, i think we though. should i, really like I think that. we should re- redo <laughs> we could um, recreate some of these uh, photos oh my god yeah i was thinking that when you were talking about the the uh, photo shoot in drag with penny farthing i was like i want to do i want to be a drag it's absolutely astounding photo. i can see you and me both with uh handlebar mustaches see what yep, i did there yep, yep, yep. handlebar mustaches and then like little <laughs> bowler hats or top hats Yes. pocket watches and things just looking real dapper uh, with yes. our penny farthings i'm there let's sort there it. used to be a cycling sort of a an old cycling club that used to meet in um, a pub near me in london called the handlebar club Whoa. and it was for uh but it wasn't for cyc- oh no it wasn't for cyclists it was for men with uh, impressive mustaches um <laughs> 
I don't think there was a maybe there wasn't a um a, maybe there wasn't even any connection to cycling, but they had magnificent facial hair. Magnificent. I bet they did. Yeah, so I was just and time it <laughs> but yeah that was so interesting and um i really enjoyed learning about the the queer cycling because i think it's uh, actually only only yesterday we looked after our neighbor's puppy while she went out on her bike uh she she's yeah. a queer woman i went out and did it did her own cycle queer uh, she looked like one of the mammals but she she's a queer woman so <laughs> i feel like we should replace the lycra with um just like something really ads. cool <laughs> something not lycra yeah something not lycra like i don't know capes i don't know capes <laughs> what's cooler than a cape we can capes we are can amazing suggestions we can take suggestions for that but uh, maybe top hats these photos of yeah i mean not pedal pushers not bloomers they do look incredibly dapper in all those photos though um you know really really provocative feminist images it's great fun yeah i'll send you them please do that sounds so good thank you so much daisy that was uh i really enjoyed that a lot thanks okay um so i guess there's something quite quite playful about about bikes and the freedom that you can get with a bike and and i'm also thinking of the queen song like i want to ride my bicycle (laughs) and i think that there's i think that we as queer people find our joy possibly a little bit later in life because Mm. of you know maybe not knowing what's going on for us if if, you know especially if you're um let's say trans then going through a transition in order to find your joy and and be the person that you know you need to be um all this i'm trying to make quite a loose connection to the topic that i'm going to talk about which is games video games specifically so that's the playful element there (laughs) i I really like video games, but that's not always, not been a long term thing for me. Mm. And I, I I wasn't really allowed to play uh, console the console with my brothers, and because they had you Travesty. know an N sixty four and a Super Nintendo and things like that, and and they wouldn't let me <laughs> they wouldn't let me join in. I had a Game Boy, it was a Game Boy, not a Game Girl, Hannah. So I wasn't allowed to play, which is so Game gross Boy. and so oh unfair. My God. But what did happen for me, which I am eternally grateful for, is that when I was at uni, I lived with someone who had a PlayStation. Um, it was just the two of us me and yep. uh, she was bi so she was queer as well and she would play The Last of Us the first one um, while we hung out and I didn't know how to play but she always kind of gave me the, the controller and would be like just give it a go just have a go like yeah, it's yeah. a really good game is it an individual game or a team team game? it's an, it's an individual first person game um, mm. and you're in a, a zombie apocalypse essentially yeah. and it's so there's lots of zombies to kill which is really fun <laughs> and I loved that game so much and I will get to why but there's <laughs> the second um, the sequel of that game recently came out um, and ah. I bought a PlayStation 4 specifically to play this one game The Last of Us 2 and I didn't have consoles before nostalgic <laughs> reasons very nostalgic and very very important to me Mm-hmm. But um, first of all, I'm going to start with my sources. So I read an article called 10 of the Best LGBTQ Video Games to Play While Self-Isolating by Daniel uh, McGarry on Gay Times. An, ep- an article on a German news website, which I can't say the name of, but it's DW.com. It's called A Mixed Bag in the Portrayal of LGBTQ in Video Games. And that doesn't mm-hmm. have a, um, a byline. 15 Queerest Video Games Ranked by Ali Hector in Advocate and Press A, Be Gay, LGBTQ representation in video games by <laughs> Jason Villemers on PGN.com. Now that I'm looking, I can't see what PGN stands for, but uh, you'll have to take my word for that one. <laughs> Great, let's get stuck in. Let's get stuck in. So, yeah, so I, I really enjoyed The Last of Us. It means, it means a lot to me because it was like, I don't know, it was just kind of like the first game that I played. You know, it was a, a really good adventure. It's a really good story. Mm. And after a while of kind of playing that game and enjoying it, this housemate was like, oh, do you want to play the additional, there's an additional storyline, uh, like a background story for one of the characters and it's called Left Behind. And you can go on to YouTube and watch just that second section. It's actually about three hours worth of game play but you can watch it like a movie and I got my partner to yeah. do that because she was really hyped too and that's where the main the main character Ellie so you play as mm-hmm. Joel who is looking after someone called Ellie who he has to smuggle across the country mm-hmm. and Ellie goes on this really really cute date to the mall with her girlfriend and they're like yeah. it's still in the apocalypse so nothing works but you know <laughs> like they find some uh, water guns and they have a water gun fight and then they're like they find an arcade Be game still my queer heart yeah they find 
an arcade game and and it doesn't work so the the girlfriend um describes what the game would be like to ellie and you get to play and it's it's so cute that's adorable and i was just i was blown away with the kind of the tenderness and the kind of loveliness of this because ellie's 14 so it's it's also very innocent and i've yeah i've been like anticipating the release of the last of us 2 for years and years because it just it's taken such a long time to come out but you know mm. they've they've put a lot of a lot of work into it and i knew that it would that ellie would be in the next game and she mm. it would be later in her life so she would be potentially a grown-up queer woman and mm. and i yeah I, I kind of i don't know i thought of her as a friend which maybe maybe that says a lot about me but i i just um have been anticipating no, the next chapter in her life and uh, e3 um which is this really important games i'm going to call it like a convention a lot of the Mm. very like highly anticipated video games will be presented there or first announced or or, uh, they play trailers and things like that um to kind of i don't know it's basically advertising but it's also like Like a a conference go and try out new consoles and things like that so it's a big deal Mm. um but they played this trailer with ellie as this kind of cool grown-up kind of soft butch strong woman and she's at this kind of I I think I would describe it as a barn dance and then this woman (laughs) comes up to her and they share this really lovely kiss and it it's just like they're lost in that moment together and it's just it was very meaningful Mm. and I'd never seen anything like that like I'd personally never seen anything like that in gaming before and sounds great you know I'd never seen like a lot of build up romance yeah. played out in a game like that before at all. Like romance mm. that I could identify with and it yeah, really yeah. moved me. And although like, you know, I, I was moved and I was amazed by it, it was actually it did come with a lot of backlash. A lot of people were mm. saying, you know, why does she have to be gay? This is disgusting, you're shoehorning in the queer agenda and blah blah blah. Even mm. though, you know, it she was Even though you'd read it as that previously. Yeah, yeah. She'd been she'd read she would pretty queer coded um yeah, yeah. the character and then was revealed to be queer in this extra mm. content of the game and people were angry about it then it's like it's a 14 year old fictional character <laughs> yeah let and it go queer people do just exist like let it go let it go and let it just be yeah. a great great game it won awards won a lot of awards but then you know yeah it makes sense for that character's journey and the character arch and yeah, yeah. yeah it does and it's it, it's it's great it's a great story and great character development but there was also yeah so there's always going to be disgusting people who say that it is wrong to show any kind of queer content and that's that's wrong that's just incorrect you know people there's queer people exist and so should be included in storylines so Mm -hmm. that's just how that is but there was all you know there was a lot of positivity too you know so many people celebrate the game and the story Mm -hmm. and the characters and not just because it's a great queer character but because it's a fucking great game and a great (laughs) character a great story yeah and there's a queer character in it yeah you know so it's it's part of a really rich storytelling Mm. not just which is where the focus should be right like yeah it's not about yeah it's not about um somebody's gender or sexuality like that's not the focus that's not the focus it's about the adventure exactly it's about the adventure and it's actually yeah surprisingly because i i haven't really been playing many games until i bought my playstation 4 recently i was like i should probably play more than just one game i found Mm. that it's actually not that uncommon to have queer characters or queer coded Mm. characters in games um in in video game storytelling board games is very different and um that's probably something i'm going to focus on in another episode um but yeah i think that Maybe it would be good yep. to do a little explainer, and then I'm going to talk about um, some of my, some of the more recent and uh, interesting queer representations in games. Because there's there's some things where, like, I think one one game was like, oh, there's this character in this quite obscure video game that is has a male name but right. prefers to be called the female version of the game but it's it's like a, a very very like it's like an encounter of about five seconds in the game so uh, that's not what i'm focusing i'm on focus on a much more much richer storytelling yeah so as well i'm using mm-hmm. the term queer to refer to gay lesbian bisexual transgender intersex people or anybody that doesn't call themselves heterosexual or cis with we've talked about like storytelling before in in bury your gaze mm-hmm. and the fact that it's been 
um, there's been a really long history of people not being able to tell stories about queer characters over a hundred years of, of, of that and that kind of um, storytelling has come into video games as well because it is a medium mm. for telling a story um, especially yep. since <laughs> since we moved past things Getting like a dot. Pong yep. and Tetris <laughs> so Pong was the first video ca- game came out in 1958 and that's where it's just two lines hitting a ball to either side of the screen <laughs> it's and, scintillating and even I would probably agree that there's not really any room for queer now not a lot of character arc in that but one. But <laughs> like, it's so video games are actually not that old. That's about what sixty-three years worth of history, and or it's it's not. Video games are still kind of struggling to be taken seriously as a, a medium for entertainment and storytelling. But you know, there's there's now as of um, I think it was two thousand and four. I want to say there's like there's even BAFTAs for games now mm, and I quite there? often follow the BAFTAs for games to see what game I'd like to play because yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm really into story driven uh, sorry the story driven games with puzzles and I'm, I'm not so into the very heavy uh, fighting based games because it's I'm not hu- very good at it. It's a huge industry though isn't it yeah hugely mm. rich um, and so many different cat- you know subcategories within that oh, so of course yeah, it should, should be recognised. Exactly and if it's like you said it's a huge huge industry and there's so there's like thousands upon thousands upon thousands Mm. of games um and and it's becoming easier and easier for independent companies to make games Mm. um not just massive organizations that are worldwide that then need to be careful about like quote careful about their representation because Mm. otherwise their game won't be able to sell in certain countries you know independent Mm. organizations are almost actually uh, driving a lot of the kind of more niche queer um, storylines but the representation in games you know it's it's a mixed bag and it has been over the decades because because of the the illegal and borderline illegal sorry because of it being illegal or borderline illegal to show any queer characters at all or even just in a positive light Mm. quite often uh, queer coded characters are the villains Mm. um but it is quite a lot more recently that the positive more meaningful plot lines have come about and i've been i think that a lot of that is to do with increasing diversity within like games programming and things a lot of tech has been very heavily like cis male dominated for such a long time and that is that is changing now and i think that's really made a difference um i have two friends that do games programming one is a queer woman and one is a cis man and so um i know at least there's one queer representation in games programming. <laughs> yeah, 50% of <laughs> the gamers. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, and there is, sometimes it can be hard to see how far we've come because, uh, you know, some games came out on floppy disk and mm-hmm. nobody has a floppy disk player anymore. <laughs> but the LGBTQ video game archive was founded in 2015 by the US pro- uh, Professor of Media Studies, Adrian Shaw, who is also actually the curator of a Berlin exhibition on hmm. gay games, queer representation in games, and her team have collected more. Her team have collected more than a thousand games which contain queer oh, wow. content in some form, be it characters, places, or stories. Okay, so the okay. first games with queer con. Okay, so the first games with queer content came out in the mid nineteen eighties and okay. um, were often deeply homophobic. Hmm. Okay. So, for instance. There's uh, one game called Mad Party Fucker, which were, came out in 1985. And the aim was to have sex with as many women as possible without, according to the rules of the game, getting infected by faggots with AIDS. Which no is, way. Yeah, That's horrific. So that is, oh, yeah, so horrific, so, like, vile and just... Oh, was that like it. a sort of, like... So gross. I don't know, boot bootleggy kind of found in the corner of the internet or was that like something? Well, yeah, that's the thing. Some of these games will be, but because it's released? managed to last to get make it into this um, archive, yeah, yeah, I yeah. think that it will likely not just be a bootleg one-off. It will be, again, a, like a quite a, um, released. a significant game. Yeah, and at God. that time, you know, most of the video games were text-based and you'd type in commands to say what you wanted to happen best mm-hmm, happen next. Mm-hmm. It was almost like a, I don't know, um, a playable novel, they call yeah. it now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, a lot, a lot of that means that a lot of it is left up to your imagination beyond what is just written in front of you. But Mm -hmm. interestingly, and kind of on the flip side, there is a very fun uh, sounding point and click adventure called Caper in the in the Castro, which it came out in 1989. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's commonly considered the first LGBTQ game because the other one isn't really a queer game. It's a game that is anti-queer. 
Yeah. Because of the, the yeah. So this is argued, uh, Caper in the Castro is argued to be the first LGBTQ game. And the protagonist Positive. is a lesbian, de- detective yeah. Tracker McDyke, who yes. is looking for her friend. <laughs> yeah. Who is looking for her friend, Tessie Lafemme, who is a drag queen who has been kidnapped. Tessie and this was developed by uh, CM Ralph, and it was free, but with the request that if you if you got the game, you would donate to if you AIDS, loved it, yeah, um, yeah, mm. AIDS uh, support foundation or charity or whatever. That's good. And I, That's great. to be honest, I've been thinking about whether or not to get it as an emulator online to see if you can play it. Uh, so let's see if I can help oh out goodness. Tessie, Please Le- let me Tessie know. Lefemme. <laughs> what was it? So what was good. the other person called? What was the main character? <laughs> Tracker McDyke, which is just so good. I think I want that to be my name. Tracker McDyke. We can arrange that, you know. We can arrange it. Just um, I really this, like how um, subtle it is, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really like just you gotta really the look for the queerness mm. in that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really coded. <laughs> yeah. But there's so what I Fabulous. think is one of the things about video games is like it's a whole fictional world that you can you can create the story within mm, like there's one build, thing to like yeah. read a read a novel or watch a film where fictional world is created for you but and you watch it you just observe it but in a video game you are part of the world as a, yeah, as a player as a character yeah. and the whoever's writing the script let's say writes the rules and so whatever they can imagine so long as the mechanics works mm. can happen that leaves so much possibility open yeah. uh, for queerness i think yeah to, um to live in a in a world yeah authentically. to live and out in that so i'm i'm assuming you know the the kind of quite common um queer vibe of sims yes and how how that can be that was a, an awakening a queer awakening oh, for a lot so of people much, particularly so the, the so. tumbler types of queers um make all because i you know when i found out i could make my sims do gay things i made them Bonk. do gay things a lot yeah and the more recent versions of sims uh sims 4 has amazing options for um representate like mm. gender presentation like it has it doesn't say like like sex or anything like that but it will say is what's your style does that mm. do they have boobs can they get pregnant or can they get other people pregnant rather than yeah. being like is it a man or a woman like it's mm-hmm. actually very complex yeah and i really like that so that's uh yeah that's kind of uh one of the ways that video games can help people and then um yeah, so the I mentioned an exhibition um, that was curated mm. by uh, the person whose name I couldn't say, Adrian Shaw, in yeah. Berlin. That's called uh, Rainbow Arcade, and uh, another one of the co-curators uh, is called Sarah Rudolph, and she described how um, there are a lot of queer developers who fight for every bit of positive representation, and the more people push their way into the industry without letting themselves be pushed aside, the more positive content there will be in games you know she Mm. says it also shows that it sells the predecessor of the last of us uh part two sold more than 17 million copies worldwide yep not to be sniffed at Mm. yeah people want it people do want it and that's exactly what i was saying about like the more uh representation the more space we gain the more Mm. we we as queer people can tell our stories or like work our stories into these narratives which are really makes them fun makes them playable makes it like yeah just the representation is is so important because yeah. we play a story that means slightly more to us you know yeah. and that yeah, yeah, yeah. that's there's it just means there's slightly more than just saying and it's more than just saying that like uh, you're just playing a character so it doesn't really matter how you relate to them because you're that character for that time yeah because you know i don't want to play the same story over and over again where i'm just a cis man Mm. like running the show and then he will save everyone and have such a hero complex or like wounded Mm. healer or all of that like i want variety yeah and it's not accurate is it exactly and part of the variety of life is the queerness and like you know um diversity of any kind is part of life and Mm. so i want to play more games with more of that diversity yeah. in them. Yeah, because yeah, so... that reflects our world and, and our community. And it's, yeah, that's the, that's the accurate representation of the world we live in. Like, we don't necessarily live in, you know, nobody lives in a world where there's just these kind of misanthropic men running around uh, or driving around, like going to the bar, having kind of hero crisis, crises. Like, that doesn't exist either. Yeah. So Exactly. And there's, you know, people say like, well, why, why do they have to be queer? Why do we have to have queer characters? It's, but because queer people exist. Mm. 
Yeah. It's not like, it's not why, it's why not. Yeah. Why wouldn't you want to kind of... <laughs> the same reason we have werewolves. I don't know. <laughs> because werewolves yeah, are real because... and they need to be re- exactly. accounted for. So yeah, that is a brief intro, I suppose. It's no, mm. not in any way a comprehensive history of, of games, but it's kind of a bit of background behind, mm. to the conversation. And like I said, there's some really good articles out there. I highly recommend the one um, from the German website, which was dw.com, mm. a mixed bag of portrayal of, of LGBTQ video games. Because they've also got a little gallery that shows you some um, some of the games on Oh there, yeah, that'd is, be great. It's really cool. Um, and so now I think I just want to run through some examples of cool queer representation in yes. video games, if that's cool yes, with please. you. So obviously there's the last of us left behind um in which we have the sweet backstory of um ellie and her girlfriend although i don't know if girlfriend is the word that they used but you know it's very cute and the sequel you see and in the sequel you see ellie's romance with um the character called dina play out a little bit there's also um a trans male character in the last of us 2 lev who escapes and who is helped to escape an abusive family um he's being dead named and and all that sort Mm. of awful abuse and the real um real world actor who Lev was modelled on uh, Ian Alexander is also trans so um, it's good Hooray. representation and good uh, modelling there of, of what it is like a real representation there is the what I find this pretty hilarious it's a, a game called Dream Daddy <laughs> and it's uh, for Mac and PC only it's not for console and it's an interactive novel a playable novel where mm. you a single dad has uh, moved with your daughter to a sleepy town called Maple Bay and oh. everyone is everyone else is also a hot single dad be they teacher god or bad dad it's over the top camp and you get to like you're trying to seduce your fit you're like your perfect dream daddy as a daddy (laughs) yourself so um that was developed by a couple of guys uh, or like i don't know dreamt up by a couple of guys called these the (laughs) game grumps who are really into games and they wanted to make a cute are they also uh single dads i don't know i don't even (laughs) think they're queer but um there was clearly a market for that because it does very well (laughs) <laughs> There's a really good story in um, Dragon Age, uh, Dragon Age Inquisition, which came out in 2015, uh, where the character Dorian, um, he, he was called a breakout gay character. Um, so his sexuality is not just like an option in the game, as mm. you'll see in some of the other examples, it's options. Right, his right. character is, an, is his entire identity. His sexuality is, is integral to his identity. So his, his dad tried to use like uh, conversion therapy on him, which is sort of called blood magic mm. in the game. Mm. And as a result, he runs away. Um, and his uh, romantic plot element is exclusively with men and will not you cannot romance women at all because he is gay and he is going to live his truth in that game and there's another character you know perhaps even more groundbreaking is krem who is a trans man and though he he never says trans in the game uh he's male represent uh, male presenting and reveals that he was born female assigned female at birth Mm. uh, without any hesitation or shame in the game and he even banters with one of the other characters about you know having big pecs and maybe he needs to bind uh, his big old pecs down uh, and also says that you know in his culture trans people exist and are just trans yep. men are men and that's that's the whole thing there's can't say clearer like, than that without shame mm-hmm, yeah mm-hmm. exactly in mass effect uh, so that's a really really popular rpg uh, role player game sorry and you have the ability to have same-sex relationships right from the beginning and there's all sorts of other queer characters throughout the game sorry that's been right from the beginning the third in the series came out in 2012 okay and it has meaning that the earlier versions you could just choose to romance individual people of the same sex or whatever okay but then in 2012 uh, the third in the series came out and that had fully written romances with same-sex char- uh, same-sex relationships mm. that you okay. could have. So it wasn't just like, oh, you bed this person or that person. It has like a full relationship there yeah, that yeah, you, can, yeah. you can play out, which is Goes quite further. cool. Exactly. And there's other sorts of um, queerness in, in it as well that you kind of get in... in um, it's slightly more linked to the sci-fi element of it. You know, there's an entire yeah. entirely quite all-female race which can reproduce with both genders but if it's all female i'm not sure how they have both genders um (laughs) has pansexual people lesbian doctor gay engineers by side characters and just like yeah you can (laughs) also romance across species and stuff so (gasps) okay you can do whatever whatever you like 
no rules. <laughs> in Animal Crossing, which is a cute little game that you can play on, usually on hand consoles, like uh, handheld consoles like Switch, mm-hmm. Game Boy, whatever, LGBTQ audiences um, pressured the creators of Animal Crossing um, to change their gender options into mm. style options. So you're no longer selecting to be a man or a woman, yeah. which, you know, man, short hair, woman, long hair. You're just choosing, you know, do you want to have the short hairstyle or the long hairstyle and that you know Mm. that was a direct response to um queer fans lobbying (laughs) asking for what they wanted and it's much more inclusive of trans and non-binary um people and some people even say some of the fans um have even credited that game with realizing that they're trans Mm, on being offered the option to choose style rather than gender that's so nice there's that's amazing yeah i think it's really cool actually um i think it's really cool especially as like you know animal crossing is is aimed at not aimed at but like is actually is quite popular with younger audiences too mm-hmm. and giving that option to kind of express yourself more fully at a younger age i think is very very important yeah to know that that is an option yeah exactly exactly um there's one here that i've i've put in as well although it's a bit bit mysterious because i i I was interested intrigued so i've i've put it in but it says that uh this game gone home which i've looked at before and put it onto my um uh like wish list I didn't realise it had a queer storyline, but you you basically, you're a young woman, you're returning to your rural family home only to find it deserted and mm. um, you're asked to investigate what happened. But then it says, you know, we can't give away too much without spoiling the story for you, but it received critical acclaim upon release for its portrayal of LGBTQ issues and is regularly okay. cited as proof that video games are art. Okay. So that's it, apparently an example um, although I can't really tell you how it's an example. Just gonna um, have but to. But you just have to trust me and also the author of 15 Queerest Video Games Ranked. All right, I, I do trust. So, you know. I trust the author. Thank you. I trust them too. But yeah, this is this also comes down to the thing we've said before about the the fact that the story means different things to who's listening mm-hmm. to them or to who's reading them or who's playing yeah, them. Yeah, yeah. You know, Dragon Age, Sims, Animal Crossing are, are interpreted differently based on the audience who's yeah. playing them. And they mm. like it's a representation of an uh, industry that has, you know, it's previously used lots of archetypes and stereotypes of characters to kind of have a 2D... It's evolving. Yeah. I don't know, 2D characters to make maybe gameplay easier because you then have less background that you need yeah. to establish but it's now transitioning to this more like three-dimensional characterization with you know lots of lots of expression you know grief but also joy uh regret yeah, yeah. And pain but also you know love and hope and it's not you know it's not perfect and and yeah. you know a lot of medium that media that we consume yeah, is not yeah. perfect but you know, we've got to find the things in them that we can enjoy and that mean something to us. Mm. And, you know, just like in literature, like I said, you know, there's we need queer stories. Yeah, you want to feel that what you're living is not a kind of a deviance. Even if the story is written by someone who is not queer, we want to be seen by non-queer people and to be included in their stories as part of the important, like as a, as part of an important story. Mm. Yeah, exactly. It's just fine. Um, but you know, there's so there's actually there's a lot of queer women in video games. I didn't include most of those examples because there's a lot of them. And if you go on Wikipedia, there's a huge range of gay and uh, gay mm. women and lesbian characters. And I I have a friend who was saying that like this is a way for straight men to play right. those games. Yeah, yeah. Um and not feel gay by having a female character flirt with a man but you're the female character mm, but yeah if you make that female character gay then you can feel straight still because you're flirting with a woman in the game yeah. and well, like for some people yeah. i can kind yeah. of i can kind of see that but i also think that that's it's maybe a, very a bit large brush <laughs> maybe a bit reductive i i like as in i think that maybe it's just i don't like i don't think that's the only reason maybe that is part of it and has been part yeah. of it sometimes hey, but let's make this but more I think that, you know maybe it's just because, like, game developers only know how to mm-hmm. flirt with women and there's not enough uh, straight yeah. women or gay men in the industry to be like, no, this is how mm. you make a, f- make a female character flirt with a man. And maybe it's because of the association of butch women being more outdoorsy or something like that. Maybe that's why it is, you know. I think there's a lot, more, yeah. there's probably a lot more to it than that. And I also really mm. do think that there must be yeah, yeah, yeah. a bunch of... A, like a, a huge increase in the number of queer people yeah. 
in either in programming or in the like writers room yeah they're in the room helping get these stories written because it's you know there's 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 definitely been and are situations where non-queer people do write queer stories and we don't always have to be there to write to like have them written but they're usually much better written and more accurately written when there are queer people at least consulted on on it and i think that's probably I think why you can we're be a queer consultant the good stories now is that we're getting a, uh, a critical mass of queers let's say get us in the room so yeah that's that's it that's literally all i wanted to say i thought it was really cool um i want to go to the gay museum in berlin yeah if it's going to be if it's going to be held if the archives are going to be anywhere that's going to be that's going to be sort of gay mecca isn't it i think you should absolutely apply for um a queer consultancy role um for your next yeah, exactly. your next your next job hannah yeah okay just sorted i'll do that asap <laughs> <laughs> i've got stories yeah, instead of yeah. come and ask me about them um yeah i just i just think it's fucking cool i just really like it and yeah. um no it's such a it's such a lib- i think what you were saying about it being a way to to live in a world and to build and to to grow and to form connections um and to interact with other yeah uh, you know other humans or or, or species you know in a in a in a world you know that doesn't have like necessarily like a time limit or or anything like that like yeah and i'm really you can be as free as you want and you have to have that space for expression exactly yeah just the expression the identification and i'm definitely like especially in lockdown i'm turning to video games a lot more for something to do because Mm -hmm. it feels like you know if i get really into the game i can at least feel like i'm doing something i feel like i'm gone on a walk or i feel like i've built something i feel like i've just I don't know, had some kind of an interaction outside of my four walls. Because it is like... Yeah. Like, because you have that control that's not just a film. But then with games like The Last of Us, which is on my mind because that's the one I'm playing at the moment, it's a a narrative too that is very engaging. So you watch a bit, you play a bit, you watch a bit, you play a bit. And it's like... Yeah, I think I think that it is a really good uh, medium, and it's definitely like really coming into its own, and has been for mm. you know for a number of years now. Yeah, incredible stuff. I really, yeah, I really want to, um, yeah, watch some of the playthrough. Yeah, uh, now that you've you've told me about it a couple of times, I do want to watch it. Um, well, thanks so much um for uh that yeah wonderful insight into um a a brief history of lgbt representation in gaming i've been daisy thurston gent and with me is hannah bestwick thank you very much uh find us on uh, social media radio zaddy x-a-d-d-y we're on instagram we're on twitter uh come say hi yeah come find us yeah (laughs) all right thank (laughs) you tell us what you want to hear cheers for listening (laughs) all right take care bye bye bye